Please be seated. If there are children who would like to go to Stepping Stones, which is our program for kids during the sermon time, we dismiss you at this time. I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and I'll be reading verses 9 through 31. Please give your attention to God's word. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness." To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. 
But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. A lot of people have been commenting over the last few years how Thanksgiving is being squeezed out of our cultural traditions. Now, as soon as the Halloween season is over and the decorations come down and the horror movies stop on TV at the end of October, on November 1st, the Christmas decorations go up and the sappy Christmas movies start. I always kind of appreciated Thanksgiving as kind of a buffer between those radically different holidays. But now Thanksgiving is being lost and it's being absorbed into Black Friday shopping. Yes, it is very true that our culture is becoming less and less thankful. But complaining about it out there in the marketplace is about as effective in making a difference as putting a Keep Christ in Christmas bumper sticker on your car. It's not very effective, doesn't have much of an impact. And quite honestly, we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know the true God aren't thanking him every day. Really, what we need to be far more concerned about is the level of gratitude in our own lives and in the church in general, because it's that thankfulness in the heart of believers that is a powerful witness to a culture that has lost hope. A lack of thankfulness is a problem of the heart and a problem of the mind. At its root, it's a theological problem. Here in Isaiah chapter 40, God confronts his people for not being thankful. He confronts them for complaining. He actually quotes them right there in the middle. If you look at verse 27, God quotes his people as saying, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Isn't that really the essence of all our complaints? When you think about your life, the things that you tend to complain about day in and day out, isn't that really what you're saying? That God doesn't know what's going on in my life. Or he knows, but he doesn't care. Or that he may know and he may care, but he's powerless to do anything about it. Isn't that really what our complaining says? That's why in verse 9, the very first phrase we read this morning, it says to the people of God, not to the world, but to the people of God, it says, Behold your God. Behold your God. That's how God responds to his people complaining. Isaiah was sent to God's people to tell them that they had forgotten some very basic things in their theology. For the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, most of it is about judgment. Most of the prophecies from Isaiah chapter 1 through chapter 39, Isaiah was sent to the people of God to tell them that judgment was coming. To reveal to them God's anger at their sin and rebellion, their idolatry. And to warn them that judgment was inevitable that Jerusalem would be destroyed, that the people of God would be taken away captive, and they would live in captivity in Babylon for two generations. 
What's interesting is how when we get to chapter 40, after all of this prediction, this all was given, Isaiah's prophecies were given before the judgment came. But in chapter 40, the focus changes and the whole tone of the prophecy changes. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. He's speaking prophetically of a time in the future. When their captivity would be done. When God would again visit his people and deliver his people from captivity. Bring them back into the land. Reestablish them as his people and dwell in their midst and favor them once again. And so Isaiah is given a prophecy before judgment comes that the people of God are to look to while they're suffering in exile to give them hope of God's renewed grace and favor and restoration and deliverance. And so this chapter is given to God's people who are in exile to give them hope and to burst them out of this complaining spirit, to instill with them a thankful heart. How do you do that through good theology? Verse 21, it says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? This is an expression of frustration from God. He's frustrated with his people because... This is the Jewish people. They'd been given the very oracles of God. They'd been given the priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple and the law of God and all of these privileges. And they're forgetting some of the most basic theology that was meant to be the foundation for their entire worldview, their entire way of looking at the world, at God and themselves. They're forgetting stuff that was so basic. I mean, we're, we're not talking about seminary-level theology here in Isaiah 40. I know some of you, when I say the word theology, you kind of tune out and say, oh, I, I want a practical sermon. I don't want a theological sermon. But we're not talking about deep stuff that, that scholars sit around in dusty rooms and talk about. We're talking about basic theology that we teach our toddlers. The kind of theology we have here in Isaiah 40 is the kind of thing that's in the first few questions of the children's catechism. But yet, his people had forgotten these things, and it had led to a complaining spirit. Behold your God, he says to his people. That's the bottom line message of Isaiah 40. Behold your God. Verse 25 says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. In other words, measure your God. Measure your God. And so that leads us to the first question that he asks his people here, which is, how big is your God? How big is your God? Verse 12 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of an earth, the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Can you imagine, he says, a being that is so big that he could hold all the, the earth is what, 75% water, that it could hold all the water of the earth in a little tiny puddle in the middle of his palm of his hand. Imagine a God who could measure the universe with the span. A span was basically the span of a person's hand. That could measure, could hold it up and say, that's about how big the universe is. A being who is so big that he could take all the mountains of the earth, throw them in a basket and put them on scales to weigh the mountains. 
a being that big would blow our mind, but God is far bigger than that. Verse 26 says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's saying, look up, look at the night sky. How many times does scripture do that? Look at the night sky. The night sky is put in place as a witness and testimony to the nations, to everyone, but particularly to God's people, to be a daily reminder, a nightly reminder of how big he is. Isaiah, living 800 years before Christ, with the technology or lack thereof that he had in his day, could go out on a clear night, look up at a dark sky without any streetlight pollution, And he would be able, if he was very diligent, very careful, could maybe count about 5,000 stars with his eyes alone. 5,000. Today, with all of our technology, they tell us that there are 400 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. 400 billion stars. As they use their telescopes to look into the far reaches of the observable universe, They guess that in the observable universe, and they keep using that phrase because they acknowledge that there is stuff far beyond what we can observe with all of our technology. In the observable universe, they estimate that there are 100 billion galaxies like ours. So, they say that in the observable universe, there are maybe 70 billion trillion stars. And that's in the observable universe. If you tried to measure the observable universe, what size of a space can hold 70 billion trillion stars? They say, well, first of all, they acknowledge that the universe may be infinite. But the observable universe, they estimate, is maybe 180 billion trillion miles across. That means if you could travel at the speed of light, It would take you 30 billion years to go from one edge of the observable universe to the other edge. And God is bigger than that. That's what Isaiah 40 is saying to us. Matter of fact, it says in verse 22 that he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. All of those 70 billion trillion stars, he stretches them out like putting up curtains or setting up a tent for us to dwell in. And Isaiah 40 says that all that is there just to show you how big, how great, how powerful this God is who made you. Contrary to Eastern religions and New Age religions, God is not part of this creation. That's clearly portrayed here in Isaiah 40. He sets up the universe like a tent for him to dwell with his people here on earth. And that brings us to the second interesting point scientifically, that according to the word of God, in God's perspective, the earth is the center of the universe. I don't know if that's literally true or not, but theologically, conceptually, philosophically, it is true. This is a geocentric universe because he placed men, the only creatures in the universe, made in his image. He placed them on this beautiful, life-giving planet, And then all of the story of human history is all about what he is doing here. And all of that massive universe is not to show us how tiny and insignificant we are. It's to show us how great he is. 
And it's, that's the purpose of it. And we need that reminder every day. Every day as you face the trials and tribulations of life in exile while you wait for the fullness of your redemption and deliverance, you need to keep asking yourself every day, how big is my God? How big is my God? Back at the time of the Reformation when Martin Luther was arguing with his opponents, one of his most prominent opponents was a man named Erasmus. And as Erasmus was arguing for for uh, error-filled theology, theological views where he's, he's misunderstanding and distorting scripture, finally Luther in his frustration said to him, your thoughts of God are too human. Your thoughts of God are too human. Your God is too small. If your view of God is so limited, or too limited, it will profoundly affect your life. You need to understand how big God is because you need to understand that God has the power to fulfill every promise that he has given to you and he has the power to eliminate any trial or obstacle or difficulty you face in life. He has the power to do it. Remember how God responded, God himself responded to the laughter of Sarah when he promised that she would have a child in her old age? He said to her, is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? I love how later, Jeremiah, when the people were living in exile, in captivity, and were losing hope, Jeremiah was an example of faith, believing that God had the power to fulfill his promises and that he would take away all obstacles for his people ultimately. Listen to how he prayed when God reminded him of this promise that he would deliver his people from this exile and this captivity. He says in chapter 32, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He got the message. God, you're so big, so powerful. Nothing in the universe can stand against you. Nothing can thwart your will. Nothing is too hard for you. And so a thankful heart comes from good theology, and good theology begins by addressing the question, how big is your God? He is all-powerful, and he does as he pleases. No one can thwart his will. That brings us to the second question that God addresses here. How much does your God know? How wise is your God? Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? How wise is your God? We can't enlighten God. None of us, no matter how intelligent or wise we are, is smarter than God. There is no being in all the universe that knows more, understands more, or is wiser than God. He is the source of all knowledge and the source of all wisdom. The God who created da Vinci and Newton and Einstein is the God that we serve. He programmed those highly intelligent brains. He is the source of their wisdom. And so when God determines a plan, when God pursues his will, it is always the wisest path. It is always the wisest course. 
He never makes a mistake. No one knows better than him. God allowed Satan to take away from Job his possessions, his family, and his health. Left him with nothing. And at first, Job is a model of gospel faith. And he says, no matter if he takes away everything from me, I still trust him. But a bunch of bad friends and bad counsel and just continued suffering finally wore him down. And by the end of Job, by the end of the book of Job, he is complaining. Saying, God, you're not powerful enough. God, you've forgotten me. God, you don't care. Those are the kind of things that were coming to Job's mind and heart. He had forgotten his basic theology. And it's interesting to me, at the end of the book of Job, is that God doesn't answer his complaining by telling him all the wise reasons why God had allowed Satan to do it. He doesn't even tell him about this little conversation that God had with Satan. He doesn't tell him any of the background, doesn't give him any of the plan, doesn't give him any of the, the, the reasons or wisdom behind how God is working in his life, even in this great suffering. All he does is reveal his glory to Job. So where were you when I created the world? How big is your God, Job? How wise is your God, Job? Those are the questions you get in those last few chapters. And after God gives Job a full display of all his glory, all his power, all his wisdom, as it's revealed in his creation and in his dealings with man, and we get this response from Job at the very end. I love his response. Listen carefully to how Job gets this basic theology lesson. He understands. Hits him hard. He says in chapter 42, beginning in verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting what God had said to him. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's Job's response to God displaying for him how big he was and how wise he was and how his plan could not be thwarted. He says, all of this was too wonderful to me. I just, it was beyond my understanding, but I didn't trust you. That's what it came down to. How big is your God? How wise is your God? The third question, where is your God? That's the third theological question that Isaiah 40 addresses. Where is your God? Notice that Isaiah says, talks about God creating the stars of the heavens to show us his glory, but then look at verse 26, how he interacts with the stars once he's created them. It says, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not only is God this great artist who creates this glorious universe to display his glory, but he names the stars, he counts them, he watches over them, and he manages them so that not one is lost. He is intimately involved even in the 30 billion light years away, whatever the edge of the universe might be, he's intimately involved there, making sure that the universe still operates according to his plan and purpose. But it goes, as you think about this geocentric universe that God has created, the scriptures and Isaiah 40 makes it clear that that deep, intimate involvement goes to the very affairs that happen on the face of the planet, of Earth. Look at verses 22 to 24. 
says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them away like stubble. He elaborates on it in verses 15 through 17 where it says, all of the power and wealth of the nations are like a drop from a bucket to God. You know, if you went to get a bucket of water to bring home to your family and a drop spills over the edge, you don't go back and try to scoop it up. Who cares? What's a drop in a bucket? He he compares it then secondly to like all the nations are nothing to him. uh, Like says they're like dust on scales that are used for weighing. In other words, when you weigh something on scales, you don't take into account the dust that's on the scale for fear that's going to throw your measurement off. That's how insignificant the rulers and the nations of the earth are when it comes to the will and purpose of God. He says they are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. It's a consistent message of scripture from beginning to end. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, it says that God changes the times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He's not only involved in world affairs, governmental affairs, world affairs, but he's actually actively working out his will in everything that happens among the nations. He raises up kings and he casts them down. That's the message of scripture. And it goes even beyond that, if that's not amazing enough for you. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Even the very desires and plans of the kings of the nations, no matter whether they acknowledge him or not, he still directs them according to his will. That's how much in control God is. Think about these things the next time you pick up your paper in the morning and look at the headlines. When you turn on the cable news network, when you check the news website, remind yourself that God is reigning on the throne in heaven, and everything that happens on the face of the planet is according to his will. He directs the hearts of kings wherever he wants to direct them. Our God reigns. The the theological term for that is providence. And it's interesting, when you go back, if you go back 200 years in our history, go back to the colonial period, Go back to when the Puritan theology and Reformation theology was really very much the worldview and philosophy of this nation. Providence is talked about all the time. You read the writings of the early leaders of this country and they're always talking about providence. I don't even hear the church talking about providence anymore. But providence, that just came from this wonderful biblical worldview of how big God is, how wise he is, and how much in control he is as he's on the throne. Our God reigns. As the Westminster Standards defines it, the doctrine of providence is that God preserves, governs, and directs all his creatures and their actions. That's a powerful worldview. And our materialistic, naturalistic worldview of today is so weak in comparison. Scripture, having as amazing as all that is, I'm not done yet. 
Scripture makes it clear that God's involvement in the world goes right into the very details of your life, even into the very mind of man. That's how far his sovereign rule goes. He's intimately involved in our everyday lives. When he confronted Job with his greatness and his power and his plan, he said to Job that he cuts the paths for the streams. Think about that when you walk through the woods next time. God cuts the paths for the streams and he feeds the animals. I'm really glad he didn't give that responsibility to us. How could we ever take care of all the wonderful display of creation? He feeds the animals. Farther than that, Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. When you play a game of Yahtzee and you toss the dice, he determines the outcome. That's what scripture teaches. That's how intimately he's involved in the details of your life. But it goes farther than that. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. God is in the synapses of your brain as you form your thoughts and think about the words that you're to say. How big is your God? Well, that raises the most important question. God is so big, he's so wise, so powerful, and he's reigning, he's on the throne. Nothing happens outside of his will. Nobody can thwart his will. So that begs the question, doesn't it? If he's on the throne, then where is God in all of my suffering? Where is God in all these things that I'm complaining about in my life? Well, Isaiah 40 gives us the answer to that, and I skipped over it at the beginning. It's the very beginning of the chapter. Where is God in your suffering? Where is God in your captivity? Where is God in your exile? He is coming. He's coming. That's what Isaiah tells us here. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He is coming. That's where he is. He's coming. Verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The most amazing truth is that with all of this creative and sustaining power, with all of his perfect wise plan, The purpose of it all is for him to come for his people to deliver them. The purpose of it all is our redemption, our sanctification, and our glorification. Notice there in verses 10 and 11 how the same arm that rules the universe for him, that same arm is the arm that gathers and carries and feeds his lambs. The glory of the Lord has come already. It was future to the people in Isaiah's day, 
but it's passed to us. He's already come, and he's promised that he's coming again to complete that work of redemption and sanctification and glorification. He is coming. He has come. The glory of the Lord that it speaks of was revealed in Christ, who is our good shepherd. We are the sheep of his pasture. The salvation of God's people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which atones for sin, which gives us the gift of forgiveness. That's the central theme of history. The earth is the center of the universe to God, and at the center of the earth is the cross. It's the purpose of all things that happen. That's why Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you can grasp that theology, how big God is, how wise he is, how powerful he is, and how his will cannot be thwarted, and that his will is to reconcile you to himself through his Son, you will understand what it means to always be thankful in all circumstances. That's what creates a thankful heart, is that theology. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number two, lists three things that a believer must know in order to have joy and comfort in this life. Three things that a believer must know to have joy and comfort, and I would add to that thankfulness in this life. The first one is how great your sin and misery are. Secondly, how you're set free from all your sins and misery. And thirdly, how to thank God for such deliverance. Those are the only three things you need to know to have joy and comfort in every circumstance in life. Once you've seen your need of Christ and you've accepted Christ, the only thing you need to have joy and comfort is to learn to live in a state of thankfulness in both good times and bad times. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So again, this is the theology that will cure your unthankful heart. How big is your God? He is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, and his will cannot be thwarted. How wise is your God? His will is perfect. There isn't a better way to order the circumstances and events of your life than the way that God has ordered them. And thirdly, where is your God? Your God has died on the cross and is risen again, and he is seated on the throne, reigning over all things for your good and for his glory and to complete the work of our salvation. How big is your God? How wise is your God? And where is your God? What that results in, as you contemplate those things every day, is a thankful heart. And the passage ends with the effect of a thankful heart. You want that life that's described there in that last verse? Let me read it for you. It comes from living thankfully to this great God. Verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our complaining. Forgive us for reimagining you to be so much smaller, so much less able, so much less wise, 
so much less merciful and good than you are. Father, forgive us for the idols that we have constructed in our minds and our hearts. Open our eyes to see your glory as it's revealed in the extent of your creation, but much more clearly and much more importantly, in your Son as he died for us, has conquered sin and death through his resurrection, and has ascended to your right hand and now reigns over all things as King of kings and Lord of lords. May we live thankful lives that bring glory to him and bring a great witness to a hopeless world around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, Come Thou Fountain.